You know, if, if you're a parent, uh, you understand what I'm about to say here. We, we teach our kids to obey the rules, don't we? And we, we, we teach them that there are things that just need to be done. Uh, you know, we teach our kids that it, it, it's wrong to lie. It's wrong to cheat. We, we teach our kids that we need to um, respect our elders. I know that was one thing that we passed on to our kids. My parents uh, instilled it in me, and we instilled it in our kids. Respect your elders. Um, respect those who are older than you. You know, we, we pass on lots of different things. Even We even pass on to them the importance of loving God and, and following Him and, and living a life to His glory. Those are things that we pass on to our kids. You know, sometimes, though, we carry over into the faith an, an unhealthy perspective from that. And sometimes we carry over into the faith a perspective that Christianity is about obeying the rules. We don't mean for it to be that way, but sometimes that's how we approach Christianity. Sometimes we approach Christianity from the perspective of it's all about keeping the rules. It's all about making sure you do all the right things and don't do all those wrong things. But you know, faith is it's a bit different than that. Sometimes because of that incorrect perspective, there are people out there who think that they must get their life cleaned up before they can come to God. They must get their life straightened out before they can even step foot in a church. But that's not, it's not correct. That's not the way God works. God is greater than what we could offer Him. Oh, there is a place and a time for our obedience. We're going to get to that in a moment. But we have to remember that's not how God views things. He's got a different, a different economic system in this regard for us to understand. It is true that God has a high expectation, a high standard on His expectations for Christians. God has a very high expectation. He expects His people, those who will call themselves Christians, to live a certain way. That doesn't change. That is the reality. But we have to remember our salvation is not based on what we do. We need to understand that God is greater than our efforts. We are saved because of Jesus' work on the cross, not because of what we do. And there's so much more into that. We have to remember that it's not our efforts that save us. What I do instead as a Christ follower is to be flowing from my love for God. God's love for us, you see, is greater than our best efforts, the best of what we could offer. You know, we've been... <coughs> We've been moving through the book of Philippians, understanding how God is greater than. And we've looked at a few different areas that we've seen that God is greater than. And we're continuing on in that conversation. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn to um, Philippians chapter 2. I'll get to the verses in just a minute. We'll be staying there in that area. So if you want to keep your finger there, that's great. If you're following along with the Version app, the verses will appear in there, or will, will be in there. Uh, you can follow along in that way, or they'll be up on the screen when we get to that point. But at the end of chapter 1, Paul had encouraged his readers to live as citizens of heaven should live. He had encouraged them to live the way that God has called us to live. He singles out uh, the emphasis that Christians are to have on uh, unity in the local church. And he focuses in on that. And you, you know, we, we understand that as, as we're moving through this, we've come to understand that that unity is not the same thing as sameness. It's a matter of striving for the unity Jesus prayed we would have in the midst of our differences and understanding that we are all striving toward a common goal. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul ended up giving four reasons why it is we should strive toward that unity. 
He said that we are to strive toward the unity because of our, as Christ followers, our unity with Christ, because of our love for, God, for Christ, because of our unity with the Spirit, but then also because of our tenderness and, and our compassion. He goes on then to show how having unity in the local church is part of what it means to imitate Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, to demonstrate from Jesus' life what it is that our life is supposed to look like as Christ followers. He showed that we are to put others before ourselves. Because as he, he talked about in that section, how Jesus set aside everything and, and humbled himself even to the point of death so that those who were far from him could be brought near to him. He shows us then, Paul does, from Jesus' life, how as Christ followers, if we call ourselves Christ followers, we are to humble ourselves so that those who are far from God can be brought near to Him. We see then, because of that, that making disciples more Christ followers is our highest priority as Christians and as the church. Just as it was Jesus' priority when, when He said that the reason He came to earth was to seek and to save what was lost, we catch then that that then is our purpose in life. But now, starting in chapter 2, verse 12, He goes on to emphasize that Jesus' example is what it is that we are to follow. Sometimes in Christianity, we, correct, or we incorrectly give the perspective that this, this holiness, this, this way that God has given us to live, sometimes we get the incorrect perspective that that is 100% our work. That it's just like when we were raising our kids, we tell them, be good, you know, do what's right. Sometimes we convey into our own faith that being good is all us, that it's all on us. We have to make sure that we are doing all of it. And we inadvertently teach that being good is all that matters, and that being good is of ourselves. But in our section we're going to look at today, Paul seems to be teaching something a little bit different to this young church. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 12. Paul wrote this, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, this verse, the, the way it's phrased in there in most English translations is one of those verses that also brings a lot of confusion. Because the, the English words that are used here don't convey the fullness of what Paul had said in, in the Greek original language. Okay, this is corny phrase time, okay? This is a phrase I learned a long time ago that I want to pass on to you guys. I've talked about it before. But the phrase is this. Whenever you see a therefore, you should ask what it is there for. So whenever you are reading through the Bible and you run across the word therefore, if you want to understand what you're reading a little bit better, try to figure out what was the therefore there for. Why was it put there? Why did the writers use that word? Well, it's always in reference, the therefore. It's always pointing back to something that was prior. He's saying, because this is, because of this teaching that I just gave, there's this next set of teaching. So we have to ask what it was there for. Well, in verse 12, he starts with a therefore, and he's pointing back to something. He was referring back to how Jesus humbled himself for our sake. And so you could almost say then <clears throat> that he's saying because Jesus humbled himself, we then are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You see, as Christians, we have a responsibility. There is a part that we do play 
And we have to understand what part that is, but we actually do have a part to play in this, as, Steve, uh, as Chris was talking about earlier, this, uh, this covenant that we are in. This covenant carries with it a component on our side. So let's expand on that a little bit. Let's look at those words in here of you know, salvation and work out and fear and trembling. To expand those understandings, our understandings, a little bit more to catch what Paul was saying to that young church. First of all, we need to understand that this uh, working out our salvation is not talking about working to find or earn our salvation. That's not the idea he's talking about in here. He's not saying, be good enough to earn your salvation. Stay being good enough to earn your salvation. That's not even close to what he's talking about here. Rather, when, he, when the word that was translated as work out in the English translations, it means to carry out to the goal, to carry to the ultimate conclusion. It's like if you were to enter a race, you would enter the race with the intent to win the race, or at the bare minimum to finish the race. As some people, when they, they enter the, like the Boston Marathon, their goal is just to finish it. It's not necessarily to win, they just want to finish. The goal is finishing, but in most races, your goal is to win at the race. That's the idea that is carried in that word here. It is talking about bringing things uh, to fruition, bringing life together. He was teaching to bring to fruition the purpose of salvation. So salvation here is not talking about justification. It's not talking about being made right with God. That's what happened. Jesus did on the cross. And when we, we turn to Him and we accept what he, it is that He did to us, or for us, I should say, through Christian baptism, we are then justified. We are made right with God. He's talking about here something different, though, another component that is included in the whole salvation idea, and that is sanctification. Now, sanctification is not the same thing as being made right with God. Sanctification has to do with the idea of being made into what God calls us to be. It's the idea of progressing toward holiness. It begins at the time when you submit in Christian baptism and ends at some point down the road, likely when we are face to face with God. But it's the idea of becoming something else, not the idea of a transformation that happens, but a progressive transformation. It's about progressing toward holy living. Believers are to be continually moving in the direction of becoming more holy. We are to be moving in that direction of living how God has called us to live, becoming what it is that God desires for us to become. That's the idea that he's conveying in here. It involves the idea of making better choices, overcoming those destructive habits that we may have developed before we came to Christ, or maybe even developed since we came to Christ. It has to do with that making better choices with our life so we can live how God commands us to live. It, in, it involves finding victory over sin in our life. That is possible. We aren't bound to stay stuck in that sin for eternity. But God expects us to find victory over the sin in our life and to habitually live the life that pleases God. And all of that stemming from a pure motive that we talked about before, that of love for God. Not doing it so that God will allow us into heaven. Not doing it so that we can earn salvation. But doing it because we love God. And that is our motive behind it. You know, Paul was telling the Philippian Christians 
<clears throat> to take their salvation to its ultimate conclusion. Elsewhere, Paul wrote that we were saved for good works. Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10 is where he talks about that. We were saved for good works. See, God's intent for those who are saved is that they would live how it is that He commands. That's the good works thing. We often think of salvation as being saved from something, don't we? We think of salvation as being, I was saved from hell. I was saved from my sin. But there's actually another side to this whole understanding when it comes to salvation. And that is that we were saved for something. We were saved with a purpose. We were saved so that we could do what Paul talked about there in the Ephesians passage, so we could do the good works, so that we could be what God has called us to be. He saved us for something. We have to remember that. He saved us so that we could live the holy life that God had intended from creation. See, there's another focus in here that we need to pay attention to, and that is this, another set of words that Paul used, the fear and trembling. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I like how one author put it. We're talking about the fear and trembling idea. He says that it is a wholesome caution. And it goes on like this. He says, this fear is self-distrust. It is tenderness of conscience. It is vigilance against temptation. It is taking heed lest we fall. It is a constant apprehension of the deceitfulness of the heart and of the insidiousness and power of inward corruption. It is the caution, which timidly shrinks from whatever would offend and dishonor God and the Savior. This is human responsibility. This fear and trembling that is recognizing that, the, that there is a component in us that has a propensity, a leaning toward going in a direction contrary to what would please God. And being very aware of that reality within us as an individual. And shrinking away, moving away from everything that does not bring glory and honor God to God, that does not please God. It is about becoming something other than what we were before Christ. Christians have a responsibility to live holy lives. But here's the cool part. Do not miss this next section. This is an awesome component. God doesn't leave us alone in this. Picking it up now in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Did you catch it in there? God is at work inside the Christ followers to help them, to help us, to live the holy lives. So God has a high expectation that Christ followers would live a holy life. But He doesn't just say, now go and do it. No, no, God steps in. God actually works inside us to will and to act to fulfill His good purpose. God steps up alongside us, inside us, to help us. And that's what we're going to look at here now. See, in verse 12, Paul showed the human responsibility of our faith. But here in verse 13, he shows God's part, God's responsibility and work. The word translated as works here in this verse, it's where we get our English word energy. The word means to cause a state to be, to result in, to bring about, to denote action and active zeal in contrast to idleness, useful activity in contrast to useless busyness. It has to do with doing stuff that actually has results, doing things that aren't just keeping yourself busy and active, but rather doing something with a purpose. 
as you've heard us often talking about it for the church itself as a whole, how we're, we're constantly looking at what we're doing and asking the question, is it producing results? To not produce results, well, that's an idle busyness. That's just doing the same thing over and over again without seeing the results on the other end. And the word Paul used here, it points to that, that production, that, that actually producing results idea. See, it is God who moves inside believers to pro- produce action and zeal, active zeal. God causes us to be then what it is that He expects us to be by working inside of us. The word translated as to will, it means to desire. Not from reason, though, but from emotions. You know, to put it under the reason side, let me explain that for a moment. If, if you're building something and you smack your thumb with a hammer, reason says, I don't want to do that again. I will avoid that again. I'll keep my hand out of the way. I'll make sure I aim that hammer a little better. Reason says, don't do that again. But the word that Paul used here, actually, it points over to a different side. It has to do with uh, emotional response, the desire to do something from the emotional side. It's a bit of a different idea conveyed in here. See, the Holy Spirit creates an emotional desire to be obedient to God's will. An emotional desire. Remember what I said earlier that we obey because of a pure motive, love for God? See, the Holy Spirit is at work creating that emotional desire to want to do good, to want to obey God. Let me help explain that briefly here. So basically, it's like, you know, when you're watching TV and those commercials pop up and they show you those starving children, it's kind of true. It's trying to create an emotional response in you to say, of course, I want to help them. It's like when you're at the grocery stores, they, they do often, and, you know, would you like, you know, we're over at Fairway, or I was over at Fairway, and they asked the question when I was checking out, do you want to round it up to the next dollar to feed hungry children? <laughs> the emotional response, well, no, I don't want to feed hungry children. Of course not. I want to feed hungry children, and what's a few extra pennies out of my pocket to do that? They create an emotional response to want to do it. Well, that's similar to the idea of what the Holy Spirit does. He creates in us that emotional desire to want to help, or at least he stimulates it, I should say. He doesn't make it happen. He stimulates it. See, the Holy Spirit is at work inside of us. He helps us to want to be holy. And the word translated as to act has implications of habitual living. It has the idea of creating new habits in life. God helps us to create these new habits, ones that will result in holy living. We all have habits, don't we? I mean, many of the habits that we go through in life have no real significant purpose. You know, we, we have habits of maybe, uh, we, maybe we always take the same path to work as we drive to work, or, or maybe we choose the same parking spot each, each time that we go to a store, or same area anyway. Or maybe even, you know, for many people, there's the habit of brushing your hair on a regular basis. That's not a habit I have personally, but you may have that habit. We all have habits, and many of those habits, they aren't really significant habits. They're just habits that we do. But there are habits that we have that are not just nothing habits. Habits that cause us problems. Many of the habits that we carry as Christ followers are carryovers from the time before we were Christians. They are habits of ways of living life that cause us often to go in a direction that does not please God, to go in a direction that is contrary to His will, to disobey God. Some of those habits that we have even... Unfortunately, sometimes as Christ followers, we sometimes develop those bad habits after coming to Christ. 
But Paul here is encouraging us. He's helping us to understand that though there are some deep-seated habits that we may have, if we work at it with following the leading of the Spirit, we can overcome those things. That we aren't locked into those things because it is God who works in us to cause us to desire to overcome so that we can develop new habits for life. Good habits for life. See, God doesn't leave us alone in this. The Spirit places in believers a desire to want to live how God wants us to live. But you see, there's a component in here that we must choose to follow through on. See, for our part, we must work with the Holy Spirit to make this happen. Elsewhere, Paul wrote about this over in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, and then up to verse 16, he said this, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge sin. So I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then, then he goes on to compare what indulging or gratifying the desires of the flesh looks like and, and what it would look like to uh, be in step with the Spirit. And then he goes on, verses 24 and 25. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, if, you've, if you're a Christ follower, that life before, when we gave our lives to Christ, we died to that choice. We made a choice there, and instead we chose now to live for God. As Christians, we died to that when we went down into the baptismal waters and we came back up, as the phrase is often said, rising to walk in the newness of life. We now have a new life, one that is lived for God. And so Paul is encouraging us here to keep in step with the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. You know, when I went to basic training, I remember the first day of basic training, uh, when they, they took us on out on just a short march just to start getting us used to marching and following orders. And, and I remember that, that first time, and the drill sergeant says, you know, turn left, half the people turn right. Or, or he says, about face, and suddenly you've got a f bunch of faces smacking into each other. We didn't know how to keep in step with the drill sergeant's orders. But you know what? By the end, by the time we got through basic training and AIT, by the time we got there, if the drill sergeant said, do something, we did it right then. No hesitation, no question. Rarely was it wrong. If he said, do something, we did it. We learned to keep in step with the cadence the drill sergeant was calling. That's the idea conveyed in this passage. Remember how I said at the beginning of this series how uh, many of the people who settled in Philippi, the city of Philippi, they were uh, military folk who were retiring and they were given land out in this colony city, uh, out on a frontier, in order to help populate it. So many of the people who lived there were retiring military people. When Paul talked about keeping in step with the Spirit to the Galatians, he was carrying that same idea for them. That same idea that these people here, if, they, if he had said those same words, they would have understood it. About keeping in step with the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's cadence that he calls. We are to learn to listen to and obey what the Spirit says to us. He's at work inside of us. He is at work creating a new desire to want to obey God, to want to live how God calls us. But more than that, He's also creating the ability to do so. We need to learn to listen to Him. That takes practice. 
It takes practice. It's not something that just comes naturally to us to follow the leading of the Spirit. It takes intentionality. Most importantly, though, it takes time in the Word. It takes time reading the Bible. The more you read the Bible, the more you begin to hear the Spirit talking to you, telling you, do this, don't do that. Go there, don't go there. Feel this, don't feel that. See, the Spirit is always at work inside of us, helping us to become what God calls us to become. God doesn't leave us alone in this. That's the cool thing. He doesn't just say, go do it, take care of it on your own. But He says, do it, and I'm going to help you get there. Paul goes on to give us a simple formula uh, for getting better at keeping in step with the Spirit. He goes on to help us to understand better or understand more ways that we can keep in step with the Spirit. Picking it up now in verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. You may wonder, how is that connected into everything else? Well, in this series uh, so far of, of Greater Than, looking through the book of Philippians, I've often compared the Corinthian church with the church at Philippi. And I've talked about how, in, in many ways, they were almost polar opposites. You know, the Corinthian church had a lot of issues, and Paul multiple times had to write to them about the issues they had. And for the most part, the Philippian church it had a lot of things going well. It was doing a lot of things right. But Paul had had a visitor from uh, the church at Philippi, and he had evidently, this is reading between the lines, evidently heard about some, some issues that were going on that spurred him then to write this. In the middle of this conversation, talking about how it is that we are, can follow the leading of the Spirit, he throws this conversation about not grumbling or arguing into there. Grumbling and arguing are interesting words here. Now, we understand the English word, words pretty well, but there's a little bit more to them in the original languages. I want to read you a section out of a commentary from 1955. I love using older commentaries. I use modern ones too, I do. But I love using older commentaries, not only ones that are you know, almost 70 years old now, even ones that are much older than that, because it gives me a glimpse into what the church was like at a time that predates me. I love seeing how God was at work in those people then compared to how he's at work now. And what is often fascinating to me is the similarities between the Christians then compared to the Christians now. A lot of what was going on then, whenever the then was, a lot of the same things are going on even in the church today, the good and the bad. So here's a section out of a commentary from 1955 as the, the author was talking about these two words, grumbling and, and arguing. Some translations say grumbling and complaining. Uh, in, in the translation this author was using, he, the words were murmuring and disputing. So here we go. He says, one of the ways in which this lack of harmony among the Philippian saints was manifesting itself was in murmurings and disputings. Paul exhorts them to be done with these. The, the word murmurings is the translation of a Greek word which, which means to mutter, to murmur. It was used of the cooing of doves. It refers not to a loud, outspoken dissatisfaction, but to that undertone murmuring, one which sometimes, uh, one which one sometimes hears in the lobbies of our present-day churches, with where certain cliques are having it out, so to speak, among themselves. The word refers to the act of murmuring against men, not God. The word of 
the use of this word shows that the divisions among the Philippians had not yet risen to the point of loud dissension. The word was used of those who confer secretly, of those who discontentedly complain. The word, translated as arguing, carries the ideas of discussion or debate with the underthought of suspicion or doubt. The murmurings led to arguments. We want to keep in step with the Spirit. We need to make sure we work at what it is that Jesus prayed for the church. Unity. That's what I talked about with the Corinthian church. That's what he's bringing about here as you've several sermons here so far in a row where he's talking about that same concept. The importance of keeping the unity that Jesus prayed for. It has that significant of an impact on us as individuals being able to keep in step with the Spirit. We have to make sure that we are striving toward unity in the church. Choose to make God greater than ourselves, than our efforts. Whatever it is that we are doing, we are to make sure that we do it without grumbling or arguing. God is greater. So seek Him. Trust Him for where it is that He's leading. Whatever it is that we do, we need to make sure that we are doing it without grumbling and arguing. Paul went on to explain, though, the why behind not grumbling and arguing. Picking it up now in the last two verses for our section today, verses 15 and 16. He said, so that we are, not to, uh, we are to stop grumbling and arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them, that's those of the warped and crooked generation, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So we are to do all that we do so that we can be the people and the church that God desires. This is what God has called us to. I recently heard, uh, and I think, I think we narrowed it down, uh, Caitlin and I, to where it was I heard this. That we recently, I recently watched the, uh, a movie, The Justice League. And there was one line in there, I think this is where it came from, that darkness is needed most, or light is needed most in darkness. Light is needed most in darkness. You know, think about that. That's an obvious statement, isn't it? I mean, you don't go out in the middle of broad daylight and turn on a flashlight to help you to see. In daylight, you don't need extra light. Where you need light is where it's dark. That's a pretty obvious statement there. Christians are often called the light of the world. Paul here, again, seems to be emphasizing that point once more. We are supposed to be the light that shines into our world. It is into the world that Christians are supposed to be shining out. God doesn't call for Christians to just be a bunch of candles gathering dust in a closet. He calls us to be light into our world. He calls us to be actively doing something. And He's creating in us the desire for that. He desires for churches to be actively making more disciples, for the people of the churches to be doing everything they can to make more disciples, to be actively with zeal, be a part of Christ's mission. Christianity is not to be a holy huddle where we gather together weekly, and that's the extent of the Christian life. Our purpose has always been to shine into our world. It has always been to make more disciples. 
from the very simple perspective of simply inviting people to church or to an event like we have on Halloween, where then we can try to connect them into God or connect them into the church in some capacity, or on the other side where you sit down and you have those conversations with people. Then because of your conversations, you lead them to Christ. But nonetheless, whatever it is, whichever side you go down, that has always been the responsibility, the purpose of the church, of Christians, is to make more disciples. That's what Paul was meaning here when he said that we are to shine among them. Those outside are far from Christ. We are to shine among them like stars. You know, Polaris, that's the North Star. It has been the, the way that sailors have circumnavigated the globe for centuries. If a storm came up and they lost their way, all they had to do was wait till the skies cleared, find the North Star, and they could find where it is they needed to go, where it is they needed to be. It was the guiding light that helped them to understand not only where they were, but also where they were going. See, Christians, we are supposed to be that. We are supposed to be that guiding light for people. We are to be the North Star that points people to God. Our life is supposed to be such that when people see us, they begin to understand how it is that God loves them, how much it is that God loves them, and how it is that they can be saved. That is another component of what God is at work creating in us. And we do that. We become that kind of a light to people as we follow the leading of the Spirit. See, God is greater than our efforts. He takes the best of what we offer, the best of what we could do, and He adds to it. He not only makes things happen, He creates desires within us so that we can become much more than what we would ever try to be on our own. It's not a matter of us earning our salvation. God did that. God is greater than our efforts. We play a part. We have a responsibility. But God is not expecting either our salvation or leading others to Christ. He's not expecting that to be done all on our own. When we lean into God, when we learn to follow the leading of the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, we then will become even more than we ever could dream. We will see more happen than we could ever imagine. When we choose for God to be greater than our efforts, God works in us to become what He's called us to be. And He works in us so that others can be saved through us. Father. Hey everyone. I want to take a moment to thank you for joining us this morning as you worshiped God with the study of His Word. If you're listening online, you're not part of a church, I can't stress enough the importance of joining with other believers on a regular basis. God has given us in the Bible the responsibility to gather regularly with other believers, to serve alongside, to encourage, to challenge each other, to live more faithfully for Him, to live out the gospel message. If you live in Burlington area and you don't yet have a church, I'd like to take a moment to invite you to join us this next Sunday and serve God alongside those who are here. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with God, just let us know. If you're challenged or encouraged by today's message, would you leave a review on Google or a comment on Facebook? We'd love to hear from you. And your comments may be something that encourages somebody else to walk more faithfully with God. Thanks again, and see you this Sunday.